1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Korean Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Leslie Hickman, one of the channel's hosts. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Andy Jackson about his new book, The Late and Post-Dictatorship Cenophilia Boom and Art Houses in South Korea. Um, the book was published by Edinburgh University Press in January of this year, 2024. So uh, Dr. Jackson is Associate Professor of Korean Studies at Monash University. His research includes not only North and South Korean film culture, but pre-modern and modern Korean history, cases of rebellion on the peninsula, and its invented traditions. Andy, I'm excited to meet with you today and perhaps be one of the first to interview you about your new book. Um, So I wonder if you could begin the interview with giving us um, some more information about yourself and how you came to write this book
1: yeah sure um thanks very much for having me on the um the podcast um leslie and i, I came to this book really because i i have an in, a general interest in in film in uh and i've always wanted to sort of do film studies and uh, when i was at university i i um uh, back then you could only do one subject so i was doing french literature but i uh back then in the sort of 1980s at Kent University, where I first went, they had film studies. And it was one of the first film studies departments in the UK. And I always wanted to get in, but they wouldn't let, let me in because it was so competitive. So it was, it was something that was always inside of me. So much later in life, when I finished my PhD in history, I studied Korean history, I decided to go back to film studies. So I started another degree in film studies back then. And then what I do is... is um, film history more than um sort of talking about actual films so in this book i'm looking at um um, the history of cinemas really and also cinema going uh and another reason for this book is i was in korea at this time when the time i'm writing about which is the 1990s um so 1994 95 I, i talk about the cinephilia and the art houses and the art film boom in this period but i was actually in korea and Korea. Korean cinemas back then were very different from what they are now. Uh, there, were, there, were, there was a few multiplexes, but there were few in few in number. Um, and most cinemas um, were kind of um, sort of filled up on uh, Saturdays and Sundays. And that's when I used to have time to go. So me and my wife now, we used to go to the early show because uh, that was the only one we could get into for the popular films. Uh, and it was, it was a nice kind of place to go because um, you were kind of um, uh, back then, in in Korea, there was there weren't so many sort of uh, people from other countries. There weren't so many white faces or or or, or sort of people from uh, other parts of the world. So you were kind of um, an attraction, a star attraction. But in the cinema, you were totally anonymous. So I I loved the cinema uh, for that anonymity it gave you. So that's how I got to this um, to this um, uh, subject. Really, it was it was kind of. Partly, I wanted to sort of investigate a period of career that I was actually in career historically, uh, but I was not involved in in any way. So all this cinephilia, all these art films, all these art houses, or a lot of them, they just passed me by. I had no idea about them. So um, it was kind of a way to recapture a past that I'd never experienced.
0: Wow, that's fascinating. Um, I I tried to go to another art film before the interview, but I think I've only visited about one art house before in Korea but it's it definitely was making an atmosphere which I'll, I'll ask you about later um so it was really it was a really interesting experience and I enjoyed it okay um before we begin to look directly into your book could you please describe what exactly art films are uh, and what cinephilia is for our listeners
1: yeah sure well art films <laughs> are really this kind of a slippery they're a discursive um uh topic as it as it were that there are many sort of different sort of definitions of them, mm-hmm. and that's one of the things I talk about in the in the book, actually, what art films are, but also what art houses are, because it depends who you ask, uh, you'll get a, di- a totally different definition. But for the purposes of the book, basically, yeah, uh, we're associating art films uh, with a very sort of specific period in, especially European or Japanese cinema, so sort of nineteen. 19- 50s, 1960s, 1970s, um, this sort of period of, of European cinema, you, you might associate with sort of Italian or French di- film directors with certain movements like the uh, the Nouvelle Vague, uh, neorealism in in Italy and this kind of thing. Um, but of course, our films today are very different, you know, and, and not many people, a lot of people just sort of stop using that uh, terminology. Um, but they still use it you know yesun while they still use it in in south korea mm-hmm. so it depends who you ask but for the purpose of this book uh, and for the for the listeners it's basically a sort of period in, in european especially or japanese uh, filmmaking associated with a specific period and then cinephilia again is kind of discursive uh, airing and um, there are many sort of different definitions of it but basically as someone who's kind of um uh, sort of obsessed with film, loves film, um, but there's also a sort of kind of um, uh, sort of community associated with cinephilia. So people sort of uh, gravitate towards certain places, towards certain other people, uh, and um, cinephiles also sort of see their sort of love for film and their their consumption of film as something slightly rebellious, uh, and that's a kind of very important part of cinephilia. And something I talk about in the, in the book quite a lot because a lot of the people who consumed the film back in the sort of 1980s and 1990s they were sort of um, people who had been deeply involved in in the student movement trying to overthrow the dictatorship. Uh, and after the end of the dictatorship, with the with the uh, democratization or the de-authoritarianization of Korea. Um, they sort of um, gravitated, to, a lot of these people sort of gravitated towards culture and especially film and film consumption. So um, these sort of two two sort of um, aspects or three aspects of cinephilia are important for understanding what happened in the 1990s. Number one, um, it's kind of a love for film, a, a passion for film, but also a, a love for a certain type of film, especially associated with art house film or uh, or uh, experimental film, this kind of thing, but it's also a community, uh, and that's a sort of very important part of it. And also it's, it has all sort of associations with kind of, uh, rebelliousness and rejection of what came before, especially in terms of cinema. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Thank you. Thank you for that, um, introduction. All right. So getting into the book. You start the discussion on Korean cinephilia during the authoritarian or authoritative area. So yeah. what did art film consumption look like during this era and what role, as you already sort of suggested, did pro-democracy or anti-authoritarian sentiments play in it?
1: Um, well, that's a good, that's a good question. Um, back then, it was very important for um, people kind of saw their consumption of film as something quite, kind of rebellious. Mm-hmm. Um, as I said before, you know these associations of cinephilia and rebellion, uh, and they 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 saw their consumption of film and their exhibition of film as something rebellious. I'll give you some examples okay. of that. Um, basically, the dictatorship kind of star, starved uh, young Koreans or Korea all Koreans of of a lot of sources of culture.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so um, they used film as a means to. Sort of kind of, or used foreign film, overseas film, as a way to prop up their own industry, their own domestic industry. So um, you could get, um, if you import a certain amount of film, you could get um, uh, if, if you produced a certain number of, there was basically quote to quickies. So they they produced film on the basis of um, uh, you, you can import a film, you made, it was quite lucrative to uh, exhibit one of these films. And then the profits you made, you could then turn into producing uh, domestic film, and that, it was this kind of this kind of relationship between domestic film and, and film importation. So basically, what you had is a very starved industry. Um People generally sort of went for safe bets. So if they wanted to import foreign film, they didn't go for a sort of weird, sort of obscure Italian neo-realist uh, film in which there's lots of moments of silence and sort of. Um, uh, sort of very strange uh, 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 sort of narrative, not based on cause and effect. They basically got in um, sort of blockbusters, you know, Jaws or or these films that they thought would make a lot of money. Uh, and that's not to say that Jaws is a bad film. I, I love this film, um, okay. but anyway. Um, so there was a film, a, a film industry, and film um, sort of con- consumption culture that starved of a lot of types of film that you can see now today quite easily in south korea so all these kinds of films alternative films um or um, alter- uh, uh, art films um they weren't really shown they weren't really imported so people had to self-import so basically what they did was smuggle in um films from uh, uh other countries during trips abroad. um I uh, don't If if people were studying abroad, they were lucky enough to get passports and also get the right to travel abroad, and they'd sort of smuggle in films for their friends. Mm. Um, so a lot of these films were kind of smuggled in; they hadn't been passed by the official censors, and um, uh, this is uh, then exhibiting exhibiting these films was kind of against the law. They hadn't been passed; they hadn't been given a, um, a rating; they hadn't been passed by the censors. So. This was kind of a rebellious thing to do. And this is how people sort of thought they were resisting the dictatorship in the late 1980s. And then then after the fall of the dictatorship, um, basically, you still had a military government in power or or people associated with the military dictatorship in power. So that was another way people felt that they were kind of resisting um, military rule or the continuation of military rule. And another way they they got hold of these films, uh, and this is another way in which sort of pro-democracy sort of sentiments creep into this culture, was they they illegally sort of recorded these movies off Japanese cable TV. So back then, sort of early 90s uh, to the mid-90s, a lot of um, these early cable TV networks were kind of being imported into been shown in in South Korea and um, uh, young people who love film, young cinephiles would illegally record this film onto videotape and then start exchanging um, these films amongst friends and that's how a lot of this cinephili- cinephilic sort of culture sort of grew up in this period anyway that that's uh, that, that's the kind of um, com- art film consumption of this period it wasn't really, it was underground and that's why it was kind of associated with people who who were, were within the sort of pro-democracy movement or associated with them. Does that make sense?
0: Yes, it does. Thank you. Thank you for explaining that. Um, so, my next question sort of goes along with the um, the previous one about the concept of uh, chaydeoguang. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. So, you write that art film was often understood in opposition to that. So, besides the government. And so, like what are the things that are included in this this term of Chedo that art film sort of set itself up against?
1: So, back then, in sort of um, late eighties or mid mid nineteen eighties to, to the mid sort of nineteen nineties, um, two important concepts were Undong and Chedo So, Undong was basically the movement spear. So, anyone associated with the Minjung movement or people's movement um uh that resisted um the dictatorship and that sort of uh, launched the June 1987 uprising um and then the chida one which is basically the polar opposite it was everyone associated with um uh, uh with the dictatorship in the eyes of the of the movement so what did the movement what did the undung one consist of well it consisted of basically um students intellectuals um a lot of workers um uh, the, the poor the dispossessed um, and then the cheddar one basically was associated with everyone who didn't fall within that sort of group so people associated with the military dictatorship but also uh, people associated um with the American military presence and people who supported them. Um and they had lots of supporters, they still do. Um and also people associated with the Chebo, with the large companies, mm-hmm. um, which was um, you know, kind of hand in glove with the with the dictatorship in many ways. And um um, you know, they got preferential treatment uh, in terms of contracts and uh, uh, operating, and all this kind of thing, yeah. For example, Hyundai got its big break in the Vietnam War, so thanks to their involvement with um, Park Chung regime, they were able to expand um, uh, greatly thanks to um, the Vietnam War. So, Chidewon on one side was um, was basically everyone associated with capitalism with capital with the government uh uh, ministries uh, and everyone associated with the uh, with the military dictatorship it's a very important concept uh, and people saw it in very very black and white terms in in that period of course it became much more complicated from 1993 onwards but in Prior to uh, uh, prior to 19193, and especially prior to 1987, it was uh, far more sort of opaque, uh, sort of far more black and white. If you see what I mean, um, people sort of saw um, anything associated with the dictatorship as kind of bad, um, as tainted in some way, and um, uh, and this became sort of quite important later uh, when. Um, when people started making money out of art house film going into exhibition and um, started importing importing these movies, and it became quite lucrative, and people sort of saw themselves as no longer kind of cinephiles resisting or part of the one, resisting uh, the chid of one. they sort of sort of saw themselves as kind of selling out. And this is quite interesting. So there were these kind of sort of dilemmas for a lot of people. Uh, 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 later in life, um, when they started t- t- to sort of um, compromise their original um, sort of political persuasion um, and their, their their political ideology and their sort of identity, they really associated themselves with this sort of, this period of resisting military dictatorship. Anyway, I hope that sort of gives you an idea of, of what Chedogwan is. Um, of course, now, if you ask people what the Chedogwani is, they may not have such a, a sense of, you know, there being something like the establishment. I guess that's what we would say, the establishment.
0: Mm.
1: Um, but, but back then, it was a really, really sort of crucial and key sort of notion.
0: I can imagine. Thank you. Uh, yeah, for clarifying that. So in chapter two, you explore where individuals viewed art film outside of actual theatres. What are yeah. these spaces, and what role did they play in spreading interest in art film?
1: Well, that's a really interesting question because um, this is all a lot of this is very sort of historical now. You know, the, a lot of these places don't really exist as as viewing places, um, um, and there were three sort of main areas where people went. Um, two of which kind of still do exist, but one one of which has sort of disappeared completely. The first place are the European cultural centers. These are perhaps the most famous. So um, basically the French embassy and the German embassy uh, and to a lesser extent the Portuguese and, and Spanish embassies and um, the British embassy uh, uh, and also the US embassy, they would all all have sort of cultural sort of centers attached mm-hmm. so um, to them. And part of their sort of mission was to, you know, set up, create diplomatic exchanges and all that, but also cultural exchange. So the French embassy and um, um, the German embassy in particular had sort of um, uh, cinemas, small cinemas, and uh, people could go to see these, uh, see films uh, at these small cinemas if they paid a sort of nominal amount of money. And a lot of film buffs back in the 1970s and 1980s used to go to these places, watch films. These are probably the most famous of all these sort of unofficial spaces. And because a lot of people who went on to become sort of famous directors or famous in the uh, South Korean film world, they went to these places to see these films. What was special about them was they were kind of like they had sort of, um, they they had diplomatic status. So they wouldn't have to pass the sort of standard um, censorship rules and regulations or importation stringent sort of importation um procedures that uh, films seen in ordinary cinemas would have to do so um people could see films you know made in france uh, from the 1960s that they would never be able to see um in ordinary cinemas and they could see them in these cultural in, in cultural cultural centers so these have been well researched and they're very they're, they're quite well known the second space that where people could sort of see film in this period, especially well, young students, were in these film clubs. And um, each university, Yonsei, Seoul National University, IWA, Women's University, and all these sort of famous universities, they all had these small film clubs. And people could go along and they could watch, they would go and watch films, again, which, as I mentioned earlier, have been illegally sourced, either smuggled into the country and then uh, uh, viewed on videotape or they'd been um sort of illegally down not downloaded you didn't download them; <laughs> illegally recorded off satellite tv mm. she so had these film clubs mm. um and often they kind of had these sort of strict hierarchies within them and i talk about this in the in the book quite a lot they you know you'd have senior and juniors and um part of the condition of um um uh, the the desire for people to be involved in these clubs was to make films so they wanted to get their hands on this equipment which these student clubs had which they'd sort of um, let people use but uh, the condition of them getting to use this equipment was often they would have to watch all these films (laughs) so they'd have to sit through all these French films, all these German films and these art films often which were very boring to them and they'd fall asleep and stuff like this and then uh, uh, the, the, the the carrot uh, the uh, the carrot uh, was um that they would uh, get to sort of um be involved in making their own films so these are quite famous sort of places as well these these film clubs because again they produced lots of famous directors especially um directors associated with the um um sort of 1980s new wave of films like quangsu mm-hmm. um and he, he was in one of these clubs. He's a famous sort of director associated with that. And then the third space, which I think is the most interesting, was were called Cinema or Video And basically they were um um they were sort of set up in the late nineteen eighties um as a bunch of sort of film buffs from the universities coming together and um exchanging their videotapes. Um and um it was basically a video private cinema so they were they were called cinematex but they could also be called videotex uh, and they've been there were lots of these especially in seoul but also in other major cities around south korea there was a loose network of them they were they, they would exchange films with each other um they'd send these videotapes um to other parts of the country uh, and basically a bunch of people would come come together they they pay us small monthly subscription and then they watch these films Mm. Uh, and often at the film clubs uh, at the European cultural centers but also at these videotechs they would have um you know literature students or 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 people who knew a little bit about film um come along and introduce them uh, or they get invite academics from neighbor, nearby universities um, to sort of introduce these films, talk about them and explain them a little bit. And then they watch these movies. Often, the problem was, often um, they'd only watch them on TVs so they wouldn't have a, a big screen. I- all. And um, the subtitling was all often appalling. No. Um, Because they would subtitle them themselves or they would have subtitles in Japanese. Um so they would have, you know, maybe somebody explaining what was going on in the film, if it was an obscure film and this kind of thing. So the, the viewing conditions were really bad. Mm. But um apparently these places were great. You know, people loved them. And they had they've really had when I interviewed people about them, they had really fond memories of going to videotechs and going to these film clubs in the universities. They loved these places. <laughs> They were really special mm-hmm. uh, and a lot of famous people were produced and um, uh, uh, basically became directors as a result and of, um, starting off in these videotex and film clubs and cinematics and uh, uh, European cultural centers. Yeah.
0: yeah, I think the French cultural center, I've heard about a lot. Um, I don't know if the other ones are, are still around. I suppose they are, but the French yeah. one, I, I, especially their film, I hear about a lot, oh, but I've never been to it. So that's still around. It's
1: pretty cool. Right. Yeah, These places are still around and, and the film clubs are still around as well. Yeah. It's just the video tech sort of disappeared. They disappeared. The last one sort of, I think, was the LF. I, I don't know. Is it the, um, the Culture Center Seoul? Or that that disappeared in sort of early 2000s or 20 years ago. But yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay.
0: So my next question. What key developments, which you wrote about in Chapter 3, facilitated the proliferation of art houses, places to watch films in the late 80s and the early 90s?
1: Um, Well, first, the first um, big change was um, the dictatorship uh, went and um, um, that kind of loosened up the atmosphere. The problem was they, they, they still had censorship until 1996. So that didn't changed so much. It changed up a little bit, but it loosened up the atmosphere. People thought and expected and wanted more. Uh, and that changed things a lot. Um, the second thing that happened was um, uh, the, the changes, that, uh, the opening of the market to Hollywood uh, film uh, made an opportunity whereby um, companies could import film uh, a lot more easily uh, in this period. The problem was they didn't really have the infrastructure to do this in terms of art film. So they had, they, had, they had kind of had the know-how and the um, the wherewithal to sort of import film from Hollywood, for example, or or, or or films from other countries that they thought would make a lot of money, like Hong Kong or something like this that were very popular in that period. But they they, they weren't so used to sort of dealing with uh, the importation of art film. So what happened was. Um, uh, uh, um a, a wannabe director called uh, Yi Guang Moore um he came along and he, he sort of revolutionized the whole um importation of art film in this period um, and this is around 1995, five I'd say 1995 to 1999 he changed things a lot and basically what he did was he was a he went to UCLA to study film uh, and uh, as part of his um, degree, he sort of finished all his coursework, and he had to do a dissertation. And, and his graduation project was to make a film. So he wanted to make an autobiographical film, which he ended up making. Um, but it took him a long time to do it. Um, and basically, cut a long story short, he came back to Korea to make this film because it was about the Korean War. So he thought, I can't make it in the USA. I've got to make it here. Mm-hmm. Um, but to finance his film um he had to set up his own company uh, because no one would no one back in that period of chungo in the you know the established sort of film industry in South Korea no one wanted to finance his film because it just sounded too miserable oh, He said this is a, this is such a horrible sounding film we uh, don't want to give you any money for it it will never make any money so he had to um um, try and set up, um, uh, 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 get some money, and get his way into the business in order to make this film. So he he spoke really good English because he'd been at UCLA, uh, and he was hired by this company to go to Cannes film festival and these European film festivals to import film um, and make connections. Um, and in return, this company promised to finance his film and um basically they refused at the end um so uh he said oh okay i'll, I'll set up comp- i can do this i'm good enough so I'll, I'll just set up in business on my own so he did he said he founded his own company and he imported all these films these art films back then uh the big art cinema was the Hoam art hall uh, i don't know if that still exists i don't think it does and um and um, they would show you know occasional art films uh, which were incredibly popular you know you get really massive crowds so that people recognize wow there's some money to be made here we don't have to just import these blockbusters from korea uh, from hollywood or, or from hong kong or wherever we could actually do this and make some money and the problem was that all these companies trying to compete for these one one or two sort of blockbusters but um No one was going for these art films. So they saw a sort of gap in the market. So Lee Kwang Mo bought all these films, I think 20 in all, and he brought them all back to Korea. Um, And basically that was the start of um, uh, the sort of golden age, if you like, of art film consumption in uh, South Korea around 95, 96, yeah, 1996. 456 there was kind of a golden golden period in Seoul especially uh, where a lot of these films were shown in uh, around Seoul and they became really popular and there were these little cinemas um the core art hall or art hall and the um the um uh hoam art hall i mentioned before uh, and then the dongsan cinematheque are all really sort of they became really popular and there was a kind of sort of art film explosion which is quite interesting because the same years this was all happening susan Sontag in in new york said "Ah, you know the death of cinema <laughs> you know no one's going no one appreciates film anymore no one loves all these beautiful films made in europe and and uh in in, in the united states in the 70s um, and people just like trash that's basically what she's saying but at the same time all these films have really loved in south korea by The small sort of communities of cinephiles, it was quite interesting. Anyway, that that kind of revolutionised film the 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 loosening of the atmosphere, the freeing up of the of the uh, um, the market, Uh, and uh, uh, Kuang Mo Li or E E Kuang Mo, he 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 was sort of central to sort of revolutionising art film consumption in this period.
0: You, I think you interviewed him for this book, right? Um so or he, you had in the past and so he yeah, he had a lot of good insight about the industry. Um and then also he was the one involved in something called the sacrifice incident, right? So yeah. could you explain more about you know it sounds kind of scary, but like could you explain more about what the sacrifice incident is and what the impact it had on the on film consumption in that time?
1: Yeah. Actually, um when I was writing this book, I it was right in the middle of the COVID period and um I tried to interview him, but he 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 was he was actually very ill. Um, he he got very 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 sick in this period, and uh, we just communicated by by email in the end. I I interviewed him many years ago for, about his film. Um, so that but anyway, um, that, that's a diff, that's another story. The sacrifice incident was really interesting, and if you look at sort of film books of Korean film history, they always mention. Um, or the, the side saibon the, the sacrifice incident basically what happened what was Lee Kwang Mo said well look um, I want to show all these films, these 20 odd films I bought in Cannes they he borrowed money to buy he had the rights to and he wanted to distribute them in in South Korea, all of which he was going to do, do to, to finance his film and he thought well the best way to show these films is not not for me just to give them away. It's actually to set up my own cinema. So he he contacted or he got chatting to somebody who worked at the Dongson Art Hall and said, you know, I want to set up the cinema. And they said, okay, um, that sounds interesting. Why don't you show us the kind of film you want us to to show at the cinema? And then you know, if it's if we like it, then we'll we'll give you a cinema. He said, all right. So he showed him um, this Tarkovsky film. Now Andrei Tarkovsky, sort of archetypal art film uh, director from this period, you know, russian Soviet. Uh, his film was very sort of very slow moving. There's no sort of cause and effect sort of uh, connection in the narrative. Often, you know, sort of uh, the dialogue seems to be sort of um, quite random. You wonder what's going on. It's very s- slow paced, you know, slow cinema, um, but quite interesting films. And he showed them one film. I think it was nostal- Nostalgia. Uh, and the the head of the dog song art, art, art cinema said, art, art, art Hall said, no, this is, are you crazy? No, no one's going to go and watch this film. It's mm-hmm. so boring. People just weren't used to it. He said, no one's going to see it. So, um, uh, I, I don't, I'm not going to. He was outraged. He said, I'm never going to let you run the cinema. Forget it. Uh-huh. So Equine uh, uh, World basically said, Well, look, I bet you, I bet you, it was basically a, a bet. He said, I bet you I can make lots and lots of money and loads of people will flock to go and see this film. Uh, and he said, Okay, prove it. So he said, All right, let me release one film. Uh, and that was A Sacrifice by Tarkovsky which is basically a film about a man who makes a, an intellectual, who makes a, a, a pact with God to avert a nuclear war, a nuclear catastrophe. Uh, and it won sort of best film at, at Cannes Film Festival and all this. Uh, but it is, it is sort of typical Tarkovsky. You know, it's unexplained bits. You don't know what this dialogue is talking about. You know, people sort of mysteriously levitate in the middle of the film.
0: It's quite obscure. You need to watch this. <laughs> yeah,
1: it's mad. <laughs> I mean, I I really enjoyed it, but um, but, you know, it it would put you to sleep, and and a lot of people said that. So he said, look, I'll tell you what, I'll prove to you I can run a, a cinema, it'll make money for you, and and it'll be a great success. We'll distribute this film. So okay, prove it. Go go for it. So, um, Kwang Mo basically sort of set up this, um. Uh, he had this company already they were going to distribute it they sold it to a couple of other cinemas um the lumiere i think and then maybe the core or uh and then they started the marketing and they did this m- massive marketing campaign really well done um and then uh just in a, a, a you know again people said at the time people who went to see this cinema this film they said oh i i went to the, the screening really late because i thought no i'd be the only one in the cinema so they'd heard about this film, but they'd never seen it. Uh, and there was a queue around the block, and it outsold lots of sort of um, big Hollywood blockbusters of the period. Uh, and it for a period, it was the most popular film shown in South Korea. So it was a massive thing. If you Depending on who you, who you talk to, some people say it sold 20,000 tickets, which doesn't sound like a lot, but it was back then. Some people say it sold 100,000 tickets, so it depends who you're talking to, but you get these different answers. Um, um, The problem was, of course, the the official statistics of how much a a movie sold, they were often sort of um, of underestimated, and that way um, cinemas would get away with paying less tax. So if they said, oh, yeah, only... 10,000 people went to see this film but actually 20,000 they would keep all that sort of revenue that they'd have to give to the, to the government so they deliberately under-reported attendances so you can never know for sure but a lot of people went to see this film it caused an absolute media sensation and it really started this um, this cinephilia boom in earnest you know before it was a very underground thing it was you know associated with these sort of <clears throat> Um, sort of weird sort of intellectuals or weird sort of students who were film buffs, underground watching these crappy old um, videotapes. And then suddenly it was front page headlines. So this was the sacrifice incident and it really made this art film uh, boom and brought cinephilia into the, the whole country, really.
0: Great. Yeah, I will have to watch that film. That sounds very fascinating. Um, yeah. and I would do so well. It's always very surprising. It's awesome. So I my next question is about the space of art film. I found that personally very interesting, um, how the space of the art houses uh, was really a big draw for people or what they remembered um, about yeah. it. And so I wondered if you would talk more about the spatial allure of these uh, viewing art films together.
1: Yeah, I mean, the, the, what, that's, this is part of the thing I like, do in the book. I, I don't really analyze... As I said before, I don't really analyze the films of the directors. I'm not looking all that. It's not a history of that, films. It's a history of places and spaces, and it's also a history of the cultures that grew up in the spaces. So that was really interesting to me, and I looked at a lot of theorists. Doreen Massey um, is, is a famous one, and how they sort of examine space and the meanings that are given to spaces, um, especially cinemas, and also um, how people sort of audiences sort of respond in spaces. So that's something that's very interesting to me. And I was very interested to hear about this from people I interviewed and I surveyed. Uh, and they all sort of gave me the same answer. They said, you know, um, uh, watching a film in these places was very different to watching a film in other places in South Korea at that time. If you were in South Korea at that time, uh, like like me, sort of, um, sort of early 90s onwards, you remember the cinemas they were, they were really strange places in many ways um they were kind of like in seoul if you're in seoul they're all over the place you know you go to a, a third or fourth floor of a um a, a, of an office block and there'd be a cinema you know what how does it get up there um and they're really cold places in the foyers they're really really cold this they, they, they smelt a little bit of um uh, kerosene because they had these big burners that were Blast out, eat. They would, um, you'd eat squid, so they'd be a bit smelly. The smell of squid or or roasted squid and Um If the the show was really popular, then what they would do it, they would lay out sort of extra seats in the in, in the um, gangways in the in the passageways. So if there'd been a fire, everyone would have been killed. And there it was a miracle. There was no fire back then. Wow. Uh, and the other thing was they used to cut the films. so you watch them not because they, there was anything naughty or bad in them or violent or you know sexy or something like that, but because they wanted to fit more screenings into one day. So they just cut the, so be the film. So if you're watching a film, suddenly it was like, I, I really don't want to. I mean, <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> the dialogue cuts out. It was crazy. Wow. They so get all this or all, all, all this sort of cutting a film, and then. When you, everyone would have assigned seats, like nowadays, um, and as soon as the film finished, or almost finished, you'd have someone standing over you, waiting for you to get out. And you were watching the end credits. And I used to love watching the end credits and enjoying the music and the atmosphere. they just kick you out. You'd have to leave. So that was the culture then. So what the art houses tried to do was completely overhaul that. They tried to make a, a viewing culture... Um, and what they created back then, these early pioneering sort of art houses, OM Art Hall the Core, art, um, the core and um, the Dongsong Cinematheque, and all these places at Lumiere, they create they create this sort of culture of viewing that kind of exists in art film um or art houses to this day in South Korea. So it would be kind of a rarefied atmosphere. They they often they weren't allowed to sell. Uh, popcorn and this kind of thing so you couldn't bring in food but it would add to the sort of rarefied atmosphere um, of these places mm. uh, and then they would show the film in their entirety this is quite funny i was interviewing yi kwang mo and he, I, he said oh, i said what was the most difficult thing about making your cinema he said oh that's a good question the most difficult thing was getting the camera well, or usually camera man or the projector man to show the film until the very last shot and the last credit disappeared because <laughs> they would just stop it <laughs> so that they'd start the next the, the next screening and they were used so used to doing that he said it was really difficult to get them to to show the entire film and not to want to cut it
0: mm.
1: um, so this kind of atmosphere um was introduced in these art houses which was so different and this is really important because with the rarefied atmosphere came a different sort of association of cinema with audiences so audiences go and see these films these art films um and then they would behave differently in the cinema so that's what they said they said you know yeah you know, we did make popcorn and talk we would um Sit there and reserve silence and watch these films, you know, because they deserved respect. Mm-hmm. So, another thing that was really interesting was um, I interviewed all these, most of the people I spoke to were women. And I said, I, It's like, why, why, why so many women go and see these films then? And he said, Well, a lot of people said, a lot of my respondents, or one or two of my respondents said, The well, reason was, was because we, as women, we, we weren't supposed to go off on our own. And go and see movies. We we go and see movies with other people. It was a communal thing. So if you if you told someone you're going off to see a, a film on your own, they thought you were a bit weird. Um, and if you're a woman doing it, they thought you were very weird. But if you said as a as a woman alone, I'm going off to see a, a European art film. Ah, okay. nah uh-huh. Wow. So it's, it's seen as something kind of slightly rebellious by the people who are doing it, but also it's seen as something respectable that it was unacceptable to do. So that was quite interesting. So with this new culture in these theatres, they also developed a new sort of atmosphere and a new way of watching film, I guess. Mm. Uh, and it kind of stayed with them. Uh, and, you know, 20 years later, they said, "Yeah." I said, well, what's your, what's the memory? What's your biggest memory of these cinemas? You know, and I thought they'd say, you know, oh, um, you know, I remember seeing this movie or that movie. And I said, we remember watching in total silence. Wow. <laughs> Stuff like this. Wow. If you want to get an idea of what it was like watching a film back then, Darcy Paquette has written a, uh, an article that's on his career and film website, and he does describe cinema going in the 1990s, and it's just like he says. Um, I remember going to a rural cinema as well, and it was even wilder than it was in the, in the Seoul cinemas. There, I was watching, I went to see Jurassic Park, first one, and it was like, um, it was mayhem. There were all these little kids in there, and they were just running riot all around the cinema. And it was really noisy, and everyone was chatting and talking all the way through the shop, So it was that kind of weird atmosphere mm-hmm. um, uh, uh, back then that's very different from now. So you can imagine this new culture coming in, this new art film culture associated with these art film spaces coming in it was was quite revolutionary
0: yeah i can see how the art houses themselves had created this environment that was not so much like uh consuming entertainment only is like sort of just a way to pass the time and have fun and indulge in some some foreign culture a little bit but like the art houses certainly seem more like a learning experience an artistic experience so like i can see how yeah, women too would be more respected. Like, oh, you're going alone to like you know learn or it's an intellectual activity. So like that's really cool. You that's fine. Yeah, that's really interesting.
1: Uh, well, it was interesting back then. You got to remember, um, women couldn't smoke on the street.
0: Oh, I didn't know that. Wow.
1: <laughs> yeah, right in the nineties. I, 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 you see, I all over the place now. You know, women having a cigarette. We actually, in terms of people's health, it's better. Uh, but older women could smoke; that was all right. Well, you know, sort of Ajumma, Ajumoni, Halmoni could smoke, but younger women were not supposed to smoke on the street. And and if if, if someone did, they would get they might get uh, told off by a, an older male. So it was a very different. It was a very different sort of atmosphere back then, and, and these small changes um, were quite were seen as quite significant. So that that. that that's what's so interesting about the 1990s. It was this period of transition where this great transition occurred. But yeah, as you said, that um, um, it was it was really important. A lot of the women I spoke to also said, you know, I was going to, I was about to do ULAC, I was about to go to study in France or the USA. So how did I prepare for this? I went to the cinema and watched all these foreign films. So I thought this, it was kind of education unofficial education that would sort of prepare me for this experience. So that, that, that was quite interesting. Anyway, yeah.
0: Wow. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for talking about that. Uh, so my next question is about chapter five. So in that chapter you described the administrative and economic factors, as well as changing domestic film culture, which all led to cinephilia's decline. Would you describe some of these factors?
1: Yeah, I think um, uh, what was... Well, there were there were sort of the various reasons for the de- decline of cinephilia. One was there were splits, so political splits um, within the sort of cinephile movement. And they, as I said before, they they kind of consider themselves to be a movement, sort of resi- you know slightly resisting the chid of one. The, they, a lot of them consider yeah. themselves to be a movement. Yeah. They they were resisting the chid of one. But there was there were actually political splits uh, within this cinephilia. Uh, and often it, the, the, the tensions could get quite... According to the people I spoke to, the, the tensions could be quite intense between uh, people who kind of viewed film as a means to change the world and other people who, who thought, well, film should be enjoyed for the for the sake, what, sake of film. So there was undom-jui, uh, so associated with the movement, and then yongwa jui so seeing art see film you know art for art's sake and there, there was sort of tensions within the movement that, that was a that was one issue uh but another another issue was I guess as as with a lot of sort of cults or not you know i mean youth cults for example you know different youth cults associated with music once it once something becomes too mainstream or is seen as too popular or is no longer underground and it becomes quite trendy, then uh, a lot of people start getting bored with it and start moving moving out of the scene and into something else. So I think this is another reason for the decline of cinephilia. You know, it wasn't cool anymore, it what I, you see what I mean? So people moved on. Mm. But in terms of the administration um, and, and the, the changes, what, what's quite interesting about this period, at the end of this sort of art film boom, um, around the sort of late 1990s, the South Korean government sort of suspecting said you know how can we support our film uh, how can we support our film our South Korean film and on um, um, and it was the, the period was just when sort of a lot of films like Shitty uh, started to become really popular but at the same time there were all these other directors many of whom had received a lot of their education coming through the ranks of these videotechs or these film clubs or these European cultural centers, consuming art film, you know, on the sly. Uh, a lot of these other directors, um, they couldn't get their films shown. So in the first multiplexes, um, they were trying to get their films shown. And if they didn't make it, didn't, you know, draw a crowd, they just pull them. Uh, and there was a famous sort of incident I mentioned in the book, Waranago, where these 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 sort of films made by young filmmakers, many of them were women, um, and they were kind of done in this kind of arty way, maybe not art house, but they were kind of done in an arty way, they're alternative films, or oh, the Waikiki Brothers, um, um, they call young but Take Care of My Cat, all these films, they were pulled very quickly by um, sort of early multiplexers. And there was an absolute uproar within the cinema community about this, Yeah. You know? how can we protect these movies? You know, Shiri makes a lot of money, but on the other hand, you know, these other films don't make any money at all. And they get pulled and no one sees them. And they probably don't even make it to a film festival. How can we pres- protect them? So what they did was the government established a, or via Kozik Film Film Culture Council, they established a, a network of art films, art, art film cinemas and the idea was they keep a quota um and they would show a quota of art house films made in uh, south korea so there'd be um art films which were imported but there'd also be a lot of art films that were or, or arty type films made uh, in south korea and the idea was to support these and so they established this network which kind of exists to this day um it's changed um but it's one of the few countries in the world which actually supports its own film, um, or, or or parts of its cinematic industry um, via um, support for theaters, which is quite interesting. So um, it's quite an interesting way of trying to support, you know, film product. Um, so that, that, that's why I devoted um, chapter five to this this question. Um, of course, at the moment, at, at the very moment that the, the, the South Korean government starts supporting these art houses, the cinephilia is in decline. So there are fewer people going to these, there are few of these original cinephiles going to these art houses, um, but they started their support in order to sort of support film as well.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So it's quite an interesting phenomenon. This administration is this administrative sort of effort to uh, to support cinemas.
0: If um, I remember, oh sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. If I remember correctly, there is also a time uh, that you mentioned that the um, the support that was given to the art films they all they in turn required for them to show these Korean films, but. Uh, sometimes it wasn't, maybe it was before the Warrenago incident um, as well, but they didn't really fall in line with the per- idea of what this art house should show, like what the, the kind of films that we wanted to show. Yeah.
1: Yeah, that's right. It's, you're, you're absolutely right. Yeah. It was It was really, the problem is, you know, if you start interfering in, uh, uh, in film you know what people show in in cinemas. A lot of these these people, especially these cinephiles, and a lot of the exhibitors I I spoke to were original cinephiles, and they were they wanted this freedom. They wanted this. They had this thirst for culture, they had this thirst for knowledge that had been starved from them by the dictatorship for 30 years. So um. Uh, then they suddenly get it and they're able to sort of express themselves and and watch the films that they want to watch and also start to make the films that they wanted to make they started to be able to do this and then suddenly you you get in this support from the government and they say oh look you know we'll 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 give you some money to run your cinema it sounds good on paper but then when you when you look at the the fine print you realize that yeah You'll support my cinema, but I've got to show these films. So it's kind of going against what you actually set set out to do in the first place. And people thought this is kind of reintroduction of censorship and and government control through the back door. Now, after 30 years, we've been we've been fighting, resisting the dictatorship, and then we're accepting and you know uh, the people from above kind of um, uh, imposing their culture upon us. So people kind of. Don't like it in many ways. They like the they like the subject that, that getting subsidised, but they don't really like being told by a bunch of bureaucrats. And that's basically what they were, what they were, what they should and shouldn't show. So were, it was very trial and error. And it, you know, it, it's a great idea, and it's very it was done very trial and error. And they they well, really did try to support these in these cinemas, but they also ended ended up they also upset a lot of people, especially the exhibitors, when they said, "Well, look." you haven't shown enough of these Korean films so next week I want you to show this film and the exhibitors in, in Korea they they kind of saw what they do programming and showing movies as a kind of art you know they didn't just show random films they carefully planned it out okay this week we're going to show this film next week we're going to show a season of French films the week after we're going to show a season of Japanese films they saw it as an art form that people would respond to it and their, their audiences loved it. Um, and then you get some bureaucrats saying, no, you know, never mind the Japanese seat, uh, uh season, you have to show this film because you haven't fulfilled your quota of Korean films for this week. So, it, you know, there was a lot of tensions and yeah, it's quite an interesting story. But...
0: <laughs> okay. So brings me to one of my last questions. What is the current state of art houses in Korea today? And what do you think the future holds in store for them? Also, how does society view art houses and art films these days?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, uh, a lot of these places still exist. Um, and you can go to some examples. And one of the most pleasurable sort of things about researching this book was actually visiting some of these cinemas that existed. They exist today. So one of the problems was. I did all my research during the COVID period, so I couldn't actually go to any cinemas. But uh, after I'd written the book, or most of the book, and I was revising it, I was able to visit a lot of cinemas. And some of these uh, art houses are in fantastic places. One I went to on a little island, um, on the DRFA, um, 365 I think it's called. Um, It's on a little island near Incheon Airport. It's fantastic, and it's in the country... And you kind of get a whole package. You, you can go there for dinner, and then you get to see a movie, and then you have a chat with the uh, the exhibitor, the, the the cinema owner, who's also a film, an ex film director himself. Um, so you get kind of whole package of a, a whole day out, if you like, at the cinema. It's really it's really, really nice. Uh, and then you you have all these other sort of little cinemas here and there, um, which have not just cinemas in them they're special spaces They have study spaces they have lecture halls they have um cafes and libraries or archives all sorts of stuff associated with them so it's really interesting they're still they still exist uh, and they're still going strong a lot of these places often they don't make the money just from what's shown films but with a sort of culture associated with with them Mm-hmm. Um, so I visited some cinemas in the north of Seoul which were like that um, they were kind of multi-use cultural spaces is what they called them um, but they are really interesting well, um, they're still a lot A lot of these cinemas are still supported and one of the sort of I, I end the uh, book kind of on a positive note um, by saying because prior to um, sort of the covid period there was a kind of long period of tension with the government and the sponsors of a lot of these art houses um where um some of these exhibitors were kind of blacklisted um, during the blacklist scandal because of their perceived associations with you know left-wing movements and all the rest of it so a lot of these people um there was a kind of a lot of bitterness and resentment against the government but so i talk about this this tension i I also talk about um, the current period, the COVID period has been slightly more positive where, because I get the sense that during COVID, of course, films in Korea were still being produced. Films in Hollywood are still being produced. But the one thing that people couldn't do was actually see them in a cinema. Um, There are all these restrictions, as you remember going to cinema being public spaces and all the rest of them. And, I got the sense that a lot of administrators in what they said, they really recognized the value of a space of going out to see a movie in cinema space and why it's so special to people, the meaning that it has in their lives. And it is quite special. And if you think about it, it's kind of a miracle that cinemas exist today and they do. And it's kind of a miracle that they they survive because there are all these other viewing options we can watch films on Netflix, and we do. We can watch films on online. We can download them for free. We can get them illegally and all the rest of it. We've got all these viewing options, but we still sort of opt to go to the cinema, um, this space, and watch them and pay quite a lot of money to do so and also travel quite a distance to do so. So there is that fascination for cinemas. And I think I've got the, the sense at the end of the this, uh, of my research that and after... COVID uh, um, that a lot of administrators kind of recognize the value of spaces to people um, Mm. partly because of the COVID challenge or they had on spaces. So that, that, I kind of uh, end the the book on a positive note and I think it is quite positive. Um, uh, So, you know, I can't say what's going to happen next year or what's going to happen in the future, but I hope these spaces do exist because there's some fantastic cinemas and they're worth, they've all got their sort of individual character uh, and all um, uh, got their sort of reason for, for going to them, the art house. Uh, Momo, for example, on EY University, in U, Iwa University um, the, and um, lots of other sort of cinemas I went to visit. They're really lovely places.
0: I was uh, I was disappointed in a way when I uh, saw Momo Cinema because I lived in that area for two years. And I never knew it was there. And I'm like, oh, no, I, was like, Dang it. I never went but, yeah, maybe I, I would like to try again with some films because I've become a lot more interested these days. So this was really wonderful for me to be able to learn more about the history of um, a part of the cinematic experience in Korea through your book. And, um, oh, before we head out today, because I've taken a lot of your time, I wanted to ask if there's anything else you would like your uh, our listeners to know about your book um, that we haven't really covered yet.
1: I, I think we've got most of it, actually mostly i mean it's just one thing i say is um i looked at these cultural these spaces but also look at the connections between the people who are running cinema today in south korea people who are running you know the multiplexes and that the, the successful industry that it is some of these famous directors and this period of cinephilia and these spaces and it really did produce these people uh, who are so successful with their their festivals and all the rest today um and I think that's quite important. You know, I wasn't just looking at um, the communities and cultures and spaces that were produced in this period. I was also looking at the connection between today's successful South Korean industry and what happened back then. And, uh, and to a certain extent, it's still happening today. So well, one thing I would say is, if you get the chance, go and see some of these cinemas in the book, because um, they are really wonderful places and um, one I never got to visit is the Kwangju Kukjang, the Kwanju Theatre, which is still supported um, by um, uh, kofik and is still a place showing art house film, which is supposed to be absolutely marvellous. It's supposed to be such a beautiful atmospheric place um, and I, I'd love to go there. It's one of my dreams. Anyway, thank you.
0: Thank you so much for giving us your time. Um, so we look forward to whatever future projects you might have. And I look forward to meeting you again someday. Um, and have a wonderful rest of your day.
1: You too, Ashley. Thank you very much.